Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about me and my research at rajbalkaran.com. And for today's podcast, you're interviewing Sham Ranganathan. Sham is faculty member of the Department of Philosophy and a research associate at the York Center for Asian Research at York University in Toronto, Canada. And today we'll be talking about his book, Hinduism, Contemporary Philosophical Investigation. Welcome to the channel, Sham. Thanks, Raj. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. You have you have produced a fascinating study that we will dive into. But before we dive into the study, how about we dive a bit into the author and tell us a bit about yourself and what it is you do. Oh, okay. So um, I'm a, a philosopher uh, primarily, um, and uh, my areas of specialization are moral and political philosophy, uh, translation theory. I used to think about that as um, largely an exercise in the philosophy of language. And so, you know, I do count that as an area of specialization, but I think about that more now as a as part of a project in the philosophy of thought. Um, I'm also um, an accidental South Asianist. I took an, um, I decided to take a little break from, you know, what is conventional philosophy. And, in the West, which is basically philosophy in the Western tradition for an MA in South Asian studies. And that really informed a lot of my thinking about um, philosophical problems in the Western tradition uh, and also gave me some pointers on how we might solve them. Uh, and so when I started, um, I guess, a lot of my research uh, that I'm still doing today, it was when I got interested in this apparent problem of the missing moral philosophy from the Indian tradition. Um, and that was something I noticed was really bizarre as a graduate student, that it was not even just, it wasn't just that, uh, you know, the big names or the common contributors to scholarship on Indian philosophy didn't talk about uh, Indian ethics or moral philosophy, but there were these very famous pronouncements by people like Matilal that really there, uh, you know, there isn't really anything significant in the way of uh, ethics or moral philosophy in the Indian tradition. And so I thought that was just bizarre. And um, it struck me as strange, given that uh, my own education as a philosophy undergrad, I had the strangest uh, experience where my own South Asian background came alive in my ethics and moral philosophy classes, where these kinds of basic questions of how you would evaluate the rightness or wrongness of an action were front and center and, and and you know i could i could in very broad strokes distinguish between you know deontological approaches that you would find the gita versus consequentialist approaches you would find amongst buddhists and and jains who seem to kind of take this kind of very austere virtue theoretic approach and then when i contrasted how my background came alive in in the ethic classes with my philosophy of religion classes i felt like you know, nothing that we were talking about in philosophy of religion made any sense 
of um, you know my parents and my family's background, or even what was kind of broadly relevant to South Asian uh, religion. And so when I came upon this rather strange view uh, in the literature that um, you know Indians weren't interested in ethics, it just started off this kind of this snowball of research. Well, the first question is why? You know, why would anybody come to think that? Um, and the first thing I noticed was that how Indologists study Indian thought didn't resemble anything like what would happen uh, in philosophy, where, you know, as a philosophy student, you're encouraged to try and understand the theory of a thinker that would explain their controversial claims. So if you're going to study Kant, you have to try and understand Kant's theory of morality that would explain his use of the word morality. And you would do the same thing with, you know, utilitarians. You would try to understand their theory that would influence the, you know, entail their their, their claims that they make about um, ethics. Uh, and then you would understand the topic as what they as what they disagree about. But what I found in Indology was that authors and commentators would use their own outlook as a way of gauging what uh, Indian thinkers were saying. So they would they would look on a case to case basis. Uh, and then measure out claims about dharma, not in terms of a background theory that was informing what the Indian thinker was saying, but in terms of their own beliefs. So, you know, when the Buddhist uses the word dharma for what the Indologist would think is just a constituent of reality, all of a sudden, you know, the meaning there isn't ethics and morality, it's whatever the Indologist would have said. And so this struck me as bizarre. It was this kind of systematic displacement of uh, you know Indian philosophical views with the kinds of views that contemporary Westernized thinkers would rather Indian thinkers <laughs> said, um, and so when I went on to my um, my PhD research in in translating moral discourse, it was largely a dissertation in uh, analytic uh, metaethics and philosophy of language, and also translation studies. But I also drew from continental thinkers. The, the weirdest kind of experience I had was I started to see that the kinds of things that happened in scholarship and indology were just direct entailments from you know, widely held views about language and translation in the Western tradition. Um, and one thing I started to learn, and it was a bit of news to me, was that everybody in the Western tradition just assumed that uh, the content of um, your thought is linguistic meaning. But if you then hold this view, uh, you're committed to understanding others in terms of the outlook encoded in your language. And so I was able to just basically reconstruct the kinds of things that I was seeing in the scholarship um, in Indology by, by reference to this theory. And, and, and the funny thing about this theory is that when you read you know, contemporary philosophers from you know, the 20th century, they make it sound like it's a new thing, the linguistic turn, right? So Michael Dummett will talk about how Frege was the first uh, to come to this idea, but it's really, it goes back to the Greeks who had one word for, you know, thought and language logos. And so there's this huge tradition in the West where uh, this basic model of understanding of, of language influences and informs the kinds of things that people who operate in this tradition are willing to say and what they're willing to um, um count as understanding. So I don't mean to be too long-winded, I'll stop talking <laughs> shortly, but one of the outcomes then I think of thinking about thought in terms of language 
is that you're committed to what's called interpretation, which is explanation by way of what you take to be true or you believe. Um, and this is a really funny model of thought for two reasons. First of all, if you're committed to interpretation, you can never understand someone who disagrees with you because you're always committed to understanding them in terms of what you think is true. And then the second problem, which it took me a long time to realize, and no one has, no one has said this from what I could see, but this violates very basic expectations in logic where good inference has nothing to do with truth. It has to do with the property of, sorry, it has to do with the property of um, conclusions following from premises if they were true. That's very different than trying to understand a conclusion in terms of what you think is true, because good inferences, good, good inferences might be comprised of premises that are false and a conclusion that's false. And you can have uh, invalid uh, inferences that are comprised entirely of true claims. So the emphasis on truth or what you take to be true is not only just kind of bizarre in terms of, you know, it, it undermines your capacity to understand those we disagree with. It's just basically irrational. It's the kind of thing that if you, you know, if a student in a critical thinking class where it was to affirm, they would be quickly disabused of that by their uh, by their critical thinking professor. But yet it's kind of the basic view of the Western tradition. And I think of, you know, Indology as we understand it as this practice within the Western tradition that you have to understand, uh, you know, what Indian philosophers and thinkers were saying in terms of what they or we think is true. Um, and so that kind of brought me to um, where I was when I was asked by Chad Meister, uh, Meister to, to, um, to contribute to this series. And um, I was a little reluctant because what I had to say, I thought, <laughs> was going to be a bit subversive. But, you know, uh, that was basically where I was when I picked up this project. So let's somehow recap this this rich survey of, of how you got here for a non-specialist or even a non-philosophy trained audience now mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you are um you're conveying a disjunction between two conceptions of philosophy two two systems of knowing or two or when one says that, for example, you know, one doesn't see virtue ethics or certain kind of philosophical systems in India as with the West, it sounds to me like you're, you are indicating uh, in, almost incompatible um, modes of thought. Does this resonate? Yeah, so I think this is a more, this is, so I agreed with the first half of your summary. And the first half of the summary is that there are two different ways that we could think about understanding not philosophy, one, only one's really compatible with philosophy, but there's two different ways that we can think about understanding and partly, um, uh, you know, why this might not have been clear from what I said was I only talked about the problematic um, option, not the, not what's the, you know, the correct version, but the problematic option is to think that if I'm gonna understand you, I have to understand you in terms of what I think is true, Right. And so the problems there, you know, and you could, this could generalize, right? So if I was, if I had to operate with this, you know, a European background, intellectual background, when I operate with interpretation, I'm going to try and understand uh, Indian thinkers in terms of what, uh, you know, people in the European tradition would have been willing to say. Um, and so, you know, if you do this, then you won't be able, you won't be open to new options. Are new theories or disagreements between Indian philosophers 
in European intellectuals because you're committed to only understanding what whatever you're willing to agree with, right? And whatever you're willing to agree with will include your background assumptions uh, and the like. And one of the things I point out in this book is that because this model of understanding in terms of what you take to be true comes out of this very Western model of thinking about thought in terms of language, then the historical reality of of interpretation is that it operates politically with the background of Eurocentrism. It doesn't have to, you know, you could have, the world could have been different and, you know, the linguistic theory of thought could have originated in India, in which case we'd all be interpreting with, with Indian assumptions now. But it's just a kind of accident of history that this model of thought was the default model of the Western tradition. And so then it's, it, it creates a context where understanding can never allow for disagreement. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to understand in terms of valid inference. So this requires a just a 30-second intro to logic lesson, which is you know, one of the first things you learn if you take a critical thinking class or a formal logic class is that there are two different kinds of inferences. There are valid inferences, and then there are invalid inferences. And a valid inference is such that if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. So that's not the same as inferences where the premises are true, right? So you can think of lots of arguments with false premises, but if those premises were true, the conclusion would have to be true, right? So, you know, the moon is made out of green cheese. Premise one, green cheese is tasty. Conclusion, therefore, the moon is tasty. That's all false. But nevertheless, it's a valid inference because if the premises were true, the conclusion would have to be true. So I think what we do in philosophy, um, and this is nothing that you can learn except for studying lots of philosophy, not just a little bit, but lots of philosophy, is that you're challenged to understand someone else as providing you an argument. And your only means of assessing that argument is in terms of validity. So you're going to try and figure out what premises they hold, such that if those premises were true, then the conclusions that they come to would have to be true. Now, I call this explication. This word explication has been used in other ways. But uh, one of the things I point out is that this model is not only based on logic. It doesn't assume any background agreement, right? So as a philosophy student, if I try to understand the Yoga Sutra, for instance, Right. What I would have to do is I'd have to read the entire Yoga Sutra and then look for premises in the Yoga Sutra that entail the odd claims here and there that uh, potentially makes about dharma. Right. And then once I've come to a theory that implicit in the text that would entail the claims that uh, potentially is making about dharma, I've understood potentially's theory of dharma. Right. This is the same thing we do when we're trying to understand Kant or Plato or whoever it may be. We're trying to look for the premises implicit in what in the perspective that's being offered that would entail the controversial claims. And then the second part of this process of explication is that once we've done this for a very large number of competing theories, we look at what the competing theories converge on as they disagree. So, you know, you have to study lots of ethical theories before you understand that what moral philosophers are disagreeing about is the right or the good. That's that's basically the one thing they have in common as they disagree. And so one of the things I point out is if you were to do the same to Indian philosophy 
and you look darshana the darshana and you look at the premises in each darshana uh, that entail their particular claims about dharma you'll find that what they have in common is that they're disagreeing about the right or the good Okay, so there are then two very different ways that we could approach understanding what's common in the Western tradition and uh, in Indology is interpretation. And what's really central to philosophy is this, uh, is what I call explication. And it just so happens that the Western tradition has from the very beginning had a very troubled relationship with philosophy, right? It starts with the murder of Socrates, and then you have this very long tradition of persecuting public intellectuals. And I think it's just because if you if you if you have this view that understanding has to be based on um, you know, what you believe, you're going to have a lot of trouble with disagreement. But if you adopt uh, you know uh, interpret uh, explication, then disagreement is really how you make sense of things. So those are kind of the two approaches. Okay. So now that you've set the stage in terms of the backdrop, um, right. what? Tell us about the book project. Tell us about what it is right. you the research question or what is it what is it you tackle in the book? So one of the things that started um, appearing to me as salient is that once you've distinguished between these two methods of understanding and you also appreciate the historical roots of interpretation, then you have an explanation not only for why um, Indian philosophy is kind of studied the way it is. Um, you know, in terms of what the Indologist thinks to be true. And so then as Indian philosophers' views on, say, morality or ethics depart from the Indologist, right, it just, it simply isn't represented in the research. But you also have an explanation for something else, which is why anything in our world gets counted as religion, right? So, you know, I think for students of South Asia, it's pretty obvious that, uh, especially Hinduism, that for any stereotype you have about what what is religious or what counts as uh, you know religious belief, you're going to find a South Asian or Hindu counterexample, right? So you can be a Hindu and an atheist, you can be a Hindu and a naturalist, right? The Sankhya Karka is this long, you know, exposition of a naturalist theory of the evolution of prakriti, where even you know mentality and personality comes out to be this kind of epiphenomenal result of complexity. And, you know, the saving insight, uh, according to um, the Sankhya Karaka, is that, uh, you know, you really understand what's true when you realize that, you, you know, the only thing that's ever made choices or suffered or gone through experiences has been nature, right? So this is a very kind of strong naturalistic argument. It's almost an eliminativist argument for mentality or persons. And if you, you know, if you ran into a, a European articulating this with no non-European roots. Everybody would just say, oh, it's, you know, something like secular naturalism. But the moment it's a South Asian, uh, historically, you know, uh, not drawing from the Western tradition, it becomes Hinduism. So, you know, what accounts for this bizarre double standard where, you know, a Western philosopher, say, like Descartes or Plato, can talk about God, but that's secular philosophy. But the moment, you know, a historical South Asian talks about naturalism or atheism, that's, that's got to be religion. And this distinction between explication and interpretation answers that question. It says that, well, the reasons we distinguish between secular thought and religion is because if you assume interpretation and a Eurocentric background, then anything that isn't derivable from European literature is going to be mysterious, 
difficult to explain. It's going to seem traditional and somehow kind of obstinately uh, traditional in the face of not being uh, overtly reasonable, right? In religion, the category of religion in our world is this is this box where everything that isn't derivable from European uh, literature uh, and is hence not interpretable by uh, you know the beliefs of the European tradition gets put in. Um, and this is why all the world major world religions are not uh, of European origin, right? They all have their origin outside. And so Hinduism is a kind of very late addition to this uh, schematism where European literature is counted as secular and then everything that's not interpretable by those standards is religion. Hinduism is kind of, a, it's one of the late arrivals on the scene, but it's, you know, in a way an extremely interesting version because the context in which the category Hinduism is is baptized or, you know, it's, it's inaugural usage is under British colonialism. And originally it was meant to just designate, you know, all indigenous Indian religion, uh, and, you know, to the exclusion of Islam. So, you know, it seems that the, you know, that they wanted, that the colonials, colonialists needed a way to kind of suss out what was indigenously South Asian. So I think that the, the category of Hinduism has this class membership rule of something like South Asian, no common founder. And this is a kind of peculiar uh, category definition because it's a class definition, not a kind definition. So a kind is a category where the members instantiate the criterion of, you know, of, of, of membership. So the category of red will contain all red things and every red thing will kind of display what it is to be red but some categories are classes like fruit salad right so you know the category fruit salad is a you know a collection of uh, fruits of, of pieces of different fruit and you know the pieces of fruit salad don't necessarily display this right so a piece of fruit salad could be a piece of orange and a piece of orange does not display itself to be composed of different kinds of fruit Right? And I think the category definition of Hinduism, in that it's a class and not a kind, leaves it absolutely open as to what could possibly fall within the category of Hinduism. So knowing that something is Hindu tells you nothing about what it's committed to. Um, and I think this kind of peculiarity of Hinduism as a class and not a kind explains why Hinduism can seem extremely open, um, and almost anything can be anything South Asian can be Hindu, but not vice versa, right? So, you know, uh, given that class definition, uh, you know, Islam or Christianity could be uh, Hindu so long as they were kind of sufficiently South Asian. But because Christianity and Islam are kinds, where the group members have to instantiate some defining feature, you know, and Christianity is probably you know the priority of Jesus. And in Islam, it will be Muhammad in the Quran, right? Uh, given that there's a, a difference in the logic of the categories, right? It, you're going to find that, say, uh, you know, it, you won't be allowed to be, say, um, first a Christian and then a Hindu. Uh, but it could work the other way. Um, so what does this tell us then about Hinduism? So one of the things I argue then is that, well, given that it's, it's really so open-ended, uh, and the only reason we call it a religion is because it's just not interpretable by the tradition of the West. 
we should really just try to understand Hinduism in terms of its disagreements. But how are you going to do that except for adopting the methodology of understanding philosophical disagreements? Uh, and if we do that, we find that the only reasonable way to represent Hinduism is in terms of what we converge on as we disagree in philosophy. And the only caveat I put in is that if we're going to do this, we should use South Asian resources to represent Hinduism. Um, but uh, the upside, though, is that if we can say something sensible about what we converge on when we disagree philosophically, uh, we're not only saying something interesting about Hinduism, we're also saying something interesting about philosophy. So the notion that Hinduism is this um, catch-all umbrella for various um, various Indian, South Asian practices that have accrued over millennia, this idea that it's, you know, it's, it's more of a group of things than, than a thing, um, this, this resonates. It, would you say there are no defining features to what we call Hinduism to this day? So I think that it really depends upon what method of understanding you adopt. So if you're a committed interpreter, you'll be committed to, um, you know, finding out some type of uh, basic commitment that Hindus share by virtue of being Hindus, right? And so I, you know, I distinguish the kind of Hinduism I'm interested in talking about. I call that representative Hinduism, where we represent the disagreements of Hinduism with South Asian resources. We can think of a comprehensive uh, a form of Hinduism where, you know, the, the author uh, really stipulates or, or says, well, look, in order to be Hindu, you have to endorse X, Y, and Z. And the reason that anybody would engage in that kind of activity is that they're committed to this idea that good explanations have to be explanations in terms of what you take to be true. Uh, so if you really, if you're committed to that, I think you would be committed to to finding something, or, or I think really making something up. Now, the reason why I think that you're forced to confabulate is that you're going to have to cherry pick, because you're going to have to decide what what it is you think is central to Hinduism, and then you're going to have to, once you've done that, you're going to draw a line between the things you're willing to consider within and the things uh, that fall outside of your view. And I think that's a very common approach. I think interpretation is such a basic practice in uh, in the world, in the Westernized world, that people are really driven to that. And you can find extreme versions of this, you know, in kind of nationalist projects. But you can also find, you know, the idea that Hinduism is a very tolerant religion that's open to, you know, all paths leading to the same goal. You know, I think it's an attempt to uh, find something central to Hinduism that Hindus are going to be committed to by virtue of being Hindus. So what I argue is that because this is really just a function of the methodology that we're already committed to, we should ask the question of which methodology is more reasonable to adopt. And since interpretation or explanation by way of what you take to be true just violates these very basic expectations of logic, I say, well, let's just think about uh, what we find when we're open to disagreement, right? And so I think if you if you follow the the approach that I recommend, you kind of walk away from that question of whether there's anything central to Hinduism because you see that you see the need or the, the the need to answer that question as a result of a bad methodology. But the upshot of I think is that if you account for Hinduism as this disagreement, you leave it open, which means that 
Um, you can't easily draw boundaries. Uh, and you also uh, have to give up trying to understand what Hindus believe by virtue of being Hindus. Uh, All right. That, now that we are clear on the undergirding ideology of the book, what is your research question? What is the main thing you're probing? Well, I mean, I guess I'm probing the question of what does what does reasonable or rational research look like in a world where the West has already exerted this remarkable amount of imperialism. Um, and that remarkable amount of imperialism, I think, is just reducible to a really wacky theory of thought, which says that thought is linguistic meaning. Um, that's to confuse the thinkable with what's culturally encoded. and because that has a European history, as that theory of thought spreads and, you know, the non-Western is divided up into, you know, it's parsed out as religious, etc. People, people buy without ever a moment's of reflection or hesitation, this idea that, well, if we really are going to engage in something like research, we should be in the business of talking about what's true. Right. And I think, you know, the question of, well, what does reasonable research look like in a world where we don't want, you know, when we recognize the imperialism of the West, um, you know, there's two ways you could go about this, which is, you know, the one way is the more common way, which is you don't really criticize the underlying assumptions of the West. And when I talk about West in the book, I, I distinguish this orthographic distinction, right? There's kind of just a geographic fact of being Western, like I am now, small w West. And then I think of this tradition, and, and I mark it out with a, a slant and an italic W, uh, capital italic W, leaning on the EST. You know, the pun is it's the West that leans on the East. But um, I think that the moment you acknowledge that there is this tradition, and it does have a culturally peculiar way of thinking about thought and understanding that's just kind of exploded into global imperialism, that uh, it's implausible to think that the right way to go about understanding anything is just understanding in terms of, you know, what people believe um, and what they take to be true. Um, so, you know, the question is, well, how would we how would we engage in in a kind of serious scholarship that wasn't kind of not only irrational because it depends on uh, interpretation, but politically suspect, suspect because you know it's just kind of culturally biased. And I think the answer is that, well, we have to look to philosophy. Um, philosophy is something that allows us to disagree, but I think one of the peculiar outcomes of this project for me was that when I started to understand Hinduism this way, uh, the South Asian dis uh, tradition became a, an alternative uh, to the paradigm of the West, right? So whereas in the West, you do have this pull towards belief, and culture and language as the as the locus of of thought and convergence and and so understanding then is about agreement, right? In in South Asia, I found that the more I tried to understand philosophically the potential of this tradition, the more I saw it as a tradition that was just open to disagreement, as the way we understand. Uh, and I have a bit more to say about that, but I'll stop. <laughs> uh, so that. So before I dig into some of the sections of the book. Let me ask you, 30,000 foot view, what is the theme, what is the takeaway you most hope readers um, take away? Yeah, so I think that, um, so I guess there's two sides of the positive, uh, the positive theme. I think when we, uh, you know, if we really want to be reasonable 
and kind of avoid interpretation and simply explaining in terms of uh, what we believe, we have to accept objectivity. And objectivity isn't the same as what we could agree to. It's what we converge on when we disagree. Right? And I think the South Asian tradition has these lovely metaphors and symbols for like the conch that Vishnu holds, right? It's a perfectly asymmetrical object. And what's interesting about a conch is that it looks different from every perspective, but yet it's the same thing. So the object of the conch then plays a central role in accounting for our disagreements, right? And another analogy I use is the distinction between a mirror and a reflection. We know that a mirror is objective because when we look at it from different perspectives, we describe it differently. But the mirror is what's holding down the disagreement, right? And the reflection in the mirror is just subjective. It all depends on your perspective. And so when we're thinking about um, the his intellectual history, but also philosophy in the wide sense of all the topics that we could be interested in, right? Lots of folks assume that there's nothing objective there because they've confused philosophy with interpretation, with is just kind of explaining in terms of your beliefs. But when we appreciate what objectivity is, that it really plays a central role in disagreement, then we need a completely different paradigm for thinking about thought and understanding. And one of the one of the themes of the book then are these themes from yoga end up playing a central role. Yoga as discipline. You know, when we when we're interested in academic research, it has to be, you know, it's grounded in disciplinarity. But what is disciplinarity, right? Well disciplinarity is a practice that you can you can engage in from multiple perspectives and it allows you to triangulate on objects of inquiry. Right. And so the importance then of yoga of disciplinarity uh, to research, I think, is central. But it just completely, and once we start going down that route, a lot of the political baggage that comes with the West just goes out of the window. So if we assume that thought is linguistic meaning, right, not only do we end up confusing the thinkable with what we believe, what's culturally encoded in our perspective, but you know, we, we start thinking that the only things that can think are humans because you need language to think. And then you'll have, you know, not only humans, but, you know, the only ones that you can get along with are the ones in your community, which is why, you know, the West has been kind of famous for trying to colonize the world, because that's the only way that you could have a conversation with someone if you're committed to this kind of bizarre view that thought is ultimately just this linguistic phenomenon, right? You have to force people to be part of your community to even have a conversation with them on this view. But the moment we realize how irrational that entire paradigm is, right? I think the anthropocentrism starts to go away, the communitarianism starts to go away, and we start to get interested in research as something that reveals to us objects of inquiry. So that's kind of, I think, the bigger philosophical takeaway. But I also do think that, you know, from a religious studies perspective, you know, one of the things that comes through is that we have a lot to learn um, about how the way forward by thinking about. Uh, Indian and Hindu resources. Was there a chapter that was most meaningful to you? Hmm. I think the chapter on logic ended up being kind of um, symbolic. Chapter four. Yes. Uh, so it's called Logic, the Nectar of Immortality. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, a lot of people think about logic in terms of just rules and systems and you know that it's true when you when you when you study logic you're going to study differing systems of inference etc but 
when you think about the topic of logic as something objective, right, it has to be framed not in terms of different perspectives, but something that you can converge on as you disagree, right? So then to inquire into logic objectively, there has to be a way to, 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 to formalize this inquiry such that we can all be engaged in this disagreement about reasons and all the same be converging on something objective about reasons. And um, and so the 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 story I use there. So this this chapter was a little different. So in other chapters, like my chapter on ethics and the chapter on epistemology, uh, it's a large survey. So one of the things I try to show is that you know in the chapter on ethics, whereas most religions are reducible to a specific ethical theory, when we come to uh, Hinduism, it's it's got the full span of of, of possibilities. Uh, and the same in epistemology. Uh, and I try to show, you know, across the board that you can't really, it's very, it's just historically inaccurate to reduce, you know, what Hindus have to say about any philosophical topic to a specific thing. But in this, in this chapter, uh, you know, I just found myself drawn to the story of the churning of the milk ocean as a kind of allegory for how Hindus can think about reason in a public world, right? So, you know, I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with the story. Um, you know, the gods seem to have lost their status because of some type of controversy they were cursed or, you know, however the, you could get the, the, the controversy off the ground. And then they go to Vishnu and Vishnu says, well, you know, I've got a plan, but, um, you know, this involves you having to conscript the help of the Asuras, who are their kind of mortal enemies. And, uh, you know, the Ashuras aren't as a category all bad, you know, like Varuna, Justice, and Mitra are, um, are in ancient texts called Ashuras. But I think one thing that Ashuras have in common is that they're kind of intolerant of diverse perspectives. So we, we're okay with that in the case of Justice, right? We don't want to intolerate injustice and friendliness. We don't want to tolerate in unfriendliness. But the Ashuras, the way that they're described, they're really just in it for themselves. So anyways... They all agree to to work together because the prize is the nectar of immortality. If they can churn this ocean, uh, they'll be able to get it. And so, of course, you know, Vishnu turns into um, a turtle or turtoise, and they churn. They use his back. He submerges himself in the ocean. He uses his back, and then you know, this king of snakes ends up being the rope. And then there's this you know divine mountain that ends up being kind of the the churning device. And so then they they have to go back and forth to churn the ocean. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about this story is that it's an allegory for, for, for understanding validity, right? So when we're trying to make sense of validity, a valid argument, we're trying to understand an argument from a third pers person perspective that we might not agree with. And yet we somehow understand the force of the argument. Right. And so it so happens in this, uh, you know, the story that they're churning back and forth and everybody has to kind of give in to the force and you know, they have to acknowledge the force of their opponent, but they don't actually thereby have to agree. Right. So that's kind of the churning. And, you know, rather magically, it happens on the back of Vishnu who is a turtle and, you know, withdrawing the limbs is a is a is a metaphor uh, in Indian philosophical text for withdrawing your senses. And so a turtle is an animal that can withdraw its limbs. And so the fact that they're churning on the back of a turtle 
right, all the more, you know, symbolizes this activity of logic or reasoning where it's not a sensory exercise. You're really trying to understand the force of the third party uh, without without having to give in. So, you know, this ends up just, you know, taking a central thematic note in this chapter. And I noticed that, you know, what's interesting about this model compared to the views articulated by famous logicians, um, philosophers who are logicians or were logicians, you know, people like Frege or even or even Husserl who tried it, you know, his hand, or, or Mill who was kind of famous for logic in, in his day, and Heidegger also wrote on logic, is that all of these kind of contemporary figures had all of these um, xenophobic and racist views. Uh, and it's often difficult for us as students of philosophy to reconcile, you know, their contributions on logic with their bizarre political views. But I think that's because in the Western tradition, we don't think about reason as trying to engage with disagreement, right? Uh, from the various earliest times, you find Plato talking about reason as the part of the soul that loves the truth. And so in the Western tradition, truth ends up being really central. But if truth is central, then, you know, people who don't see things the way you do become a problem. Uh, and people with, you know, different backgrounds are not going to share your perspective. And so they're going to seem like a threat. But what's interesting about this model from the from the myth is that you really have to learn how to get along with those who disagree if you want the prize of immortality. And, you know, and it so happens in the story that the Ashras, they renege on their bat and Vishnu ends up choosing uh, those who know how to uh, disagree. But, you know, this is an interesting, you know, uh, moral right that what it is to be divine is to be able to uh you know understand those you disagree with and put up with them um in a way that the ashras weren't willing to and so that to me kind of ended up being emblematic of this theme i started seeing in hinduism that you know at some point in some way you have to just learn to get along with those you don't you don't see eye to eye with yeah it's it's a very powerful myth, one that I've used many times before to think about. Right. Um, yeah, I've used it a number of times. Um, so your use of it was um, very interesting to me, actually. What would you, how do you make of the, of the fact that the gods actually end up tricking the demons for their purposes? Well, you know, I'm not sure if they were really, I mean, so... So I think one of the interesting features about um, thinking about disagreement is that truth stops being so important. And in the Western tradition, this is horrible. And there are some kind of claims in the Indian tradition where truth, satya, vada, you know, dhammacharya, truth ends up being kind of this very important thing. But when you look at, say, you know, the Yama rules, uh, you know, at, which we find in the ancient Jain tradition and later in the Yoga Sutra, Right, truth doesn't come first. It's ahimsa, um, and that I never quite appreciated that until I started thinking about what was involved in reasoning. That is, if I really want to understand someone, I have to put aside the question of what I take to be true, and somehow put up with them, and then find a way to coexist with them. And then after I've done that a certain truth emerges and the truth is about what we can disagree about. And I think this is what logic, you know, at a deep level really teaches us that 
when we're understanding an inference, it's not about how we see the world. It's about what follows from a certain set of assumptions. But in order to get to this insight of a reason, you have to be willing to put up with those you don't agree with. So, you know, my in the versions that I'm familiar with, I'm I, I'm not sure that tricking dashers was ever very salient. But I would say this: I think that if you're concerned about kind of understanding those you don't agree with, you're not really under any obligation to be honest. Um, you know, and this is a theme that comes out in other kind of Vaishnavist stories where Krishna will just kind of lie, <laughs> uh, but for a good result. And you know, I, I don't. I, you know, as I've kind of gotten older and I started thinking more and more about reason, I, I see that, well, yes, right? If you were really convinced that interpretation was the right way to go about things, then honesty becomes a big issue. You really have to be truthful. But if understanding those you disagree with is really more important, then honesty stops being so much of an issue, right? And that's because if I can get those I disagree with, if I can understand them, sure, I'm being maybe manipulative in some way, but it's actually better for everybody. It's more reasonable for everybody. And the alternative is if I think that truth is really important, not only do I act kind of irrationally, because truth isn't really essential to being reasonable in any way, but I really end up prioritizing myself, right? I make it, I make myself and my perspectives are really the most important thing. It's a bizarre kind of ego trip. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not. I I tend to be rather uh, unsympathetic with with these kind of instances of manipulation, um, where you know the goal is to allow for a diversity of perspectives. Hmm. So the churning of the ocean myth I've used a number of times um, in different contexts, both in workshops for. Um, continuing studies and for public consumption and also in uh, world religions sort of teaching Hinduism contexts. It is an extraordinarily rich myth that it, it never, sure. ceases, never ceases to amaze me the ways in which it can be interpreted because it's one of these myths that, that encompass sort of the largest themes of life. Um, tell us, what are you working on now? What's the next step? Yeah, so at the moment I'm working on a, on a project that I, uh, I call uh, – well, it's ethics, a global approach is kind of the, the working title. And, um, you know, it really comes off of the tale of uh, the work I've been doing specifically on uh, on India, right? So prior to this book, I, I edited the Bloomsbury Research Handbook on Indian ethics, and there was another large project on Indian ethics I was involved in. And so now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in... Uh, formulating, you know, uh, an argument about thinking about disagreement as central to moral understanding. Uh, and so this is a lesson that I, I kind of draw from thinking about Hinduism, thinking about philosophy and what it is to understand others. Um, and so I contrast it with, you know, uh, what I would call a parochial way of going about things, where you try to understand everything in terms of your perspective. And that, you know, that's how we we get contemporary Indology where, uh, you know, when a when an Indian uh, philosopher or thinker uses a philosophical term, 
no, you know, with very rare exceptions, the knee-jerk reaction isn't to try to understand the theory that the thinker is operating with that would lead to these kinds of claims, right? The knee-jerk reaction is to just substitute what the Indian thinker is saying was what you would have preferred to have uh, to have said in that case. You know, at, at a related point, Donald Davidson, a rather famous uh, philosopher of language, you know, riffing on this theme, talked about, you know, the case of people where they misspeak, right? And he's got Archie Bunker as the as the example when Archie Bunker says, you know, we need a few laughs to break up the monogamy, right? It's a kind of funny thing that he says, but the question is, well, how do we understand him, right? And Davidson says, you know, he's operating with with these kind of background assumptions in the Western tradition. Well, you just say what you would have said in that case. You just assume he's talking about what you would have said, which is not monogamy but monotony, right? And that's and that's the, the appropriate response to someone who misspoke, um, right? But it seems like an entirely inappropriate response when you're trying to understand Indian thinkers or other philosophers to treat them as though they misspoke, right? That you would simply just substitute what you would prefer they said for what they said. Um, and so, and I think this kind of inclination to judge everything from our own vantage as though it's a kind of necessary starting point is part of this very basic commitment to a parochial approach to life, right? Where all the evidence has to be assessed from our perspective. And so I'm interested in this idea that, well, why don't we just think about um, moral inquiry as, as, as the attempt to just understand disagreement. And so, you know, it's a, it's a project that draws from the European, the Chinese and the Indian tradition uh, equally, at least ideally. Um, but, you know, the idea then would be that we would come to a way of thinking moral inquiry where we weren't assuming that our background was the start, was the kind of the unique or necessary starting point. Um, and I think what ends, what will end up happening as I kind of pursue this question is that we'll end up with, with, um, with conclusions that are somewhat consonant with a, a, a yogic outlook, right? With an outlook where disciplinarity ends up being central. But we also have to allow for diversity of a diversity of perspectives, and that objectivity, right? What we what we converge on as we disagree, is a kind of is a kind of fixed point um, in inquiry. And if we can treat that as somehow fixed, we'll have a way of understanding what's really true um, in these topics, and what's really true sheds light on the possibilities of dis disagreement and the values. That we uh, that we need. So yeah, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. That sounds like very interesting research, and it seems that we have taken enough of your time for one day. <laughs> so oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We have been talking with Shyamaganathan from the Department of Philosophy at York University in Toronto on his 2018 Rutledge publication, Hinduism: A Contemporary Philosophical Investigation. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks, Raj.